OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Awesome. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Let's please welcome Ben Gibbons, founder and managing partner of Waterpoint Lane, as our investor for today. Welcome, Ben. Super pleasure to have you today. Yeah, looking forward to it, Matt. Well, Ben, what I think is awesome about getting the opportunity to chat with you today is that I'm going to say that as far back as I can remember, Canada has always been compared to Australia. They always say it's the same market. I've never actually got to ask this question. And if I have, it was never live. So it kind of fits into the motion. So we're going to talk about that and the differences, or if there is any. And then outside that, uh, the way we like to kind of kick off our show is we want to learn a little bit about yourself. If you can give us an overview all the way back from Deutsche Bank when you were working as an analyst, all the way through from uh, Grant Thornton, all the way up to RSM and to where you are today. And then one thing about you that nobody will know. And then I'll add that the other part that's really exciting about our conversation is that from all the different areas that investors come in from, you're really hitting up on the food tech side. And I think that's pretty exciting. So uh, I think there's a lot of great things we're going to talk about in the next hour. So I turn it over to you, Ben, but share away. That sounds fun, mate. Well, um, definitely looking forward to the conversation and uh, definitely looking forward to talking about the differences in, and uh, and otherwise between Australia and Canada for sure. Um <clears throat> So I guess to, to that point, um, yeah, the accent is obviously Australian for, for those that are obviously uh, maybe comparing it to South Africa or New Zealand. But uh, I, uh, I grew up in a sheep and wheat farm in Australia, um, and, and that will become a, a feature of the, the, the circularity to, to the story to some degree. Um, I, uh, I went to Sydney for university. I was actually a, a materials engineer by study. Uh, but very quickly realized that uh, a career in engineering probably wasn't ultimately going to be for me. So I um, uh, managed to um, uh, end up at Deutsche Bank. And, and the, the, the reason through that was uh, I actually participated in a, in a co-op program at, uh, at, at university. And, and my last work placement was with, uh, with the telco in Australia, um, Telstra. Um, and fortuitously to, to this story, they closed their materials research facility down just as I was rotating in. And ended up in their business strategy team. And I kind of fast forward uh, a little while, and the, the the manager of that group basically sat me down and said, "What am I doing with my career and life?" And uh, suggested that um, I should have two paths: one investment banking, or the second on management consulting. And he was a ex management consultant himself. And you know, one thing led to another. And and as you, as you pointed out, uh, I ended up at Deutsche Bank in in Sydney. So. You know, drank from the fire hose as an analyst at Deutsche Bank for a while there, kind of learning the, the financial markets, you know, having kind of studied as an engineer, um, you know, spent some time in London with that that group. And then uh, you know, got an opportunity um, to, to get exposed to a mid-market transaction um, through Deutsche Bank, which obviously not something they would, they would typically work on. Most of the transactions we were working on were large, you know, multi-billion dollar kind of M&A transactions, capital raises, et cetera. And so uh, that exposure to mid-market space really gave me uh, exposure to, you know, entrepreneurs. And and I would say um, people that had a more vested interest in the transaction process than obviously, you know, uh, boards and, and management teams of large corporates did. So uh, that, that appealed to me. So I ended up um, leaving Deutsche Bank and joining Grant Thornton in Australia. Um, so I worked there for... 
you know, the better part of uh, of 10 years or so uh, before I met my now wife, who's a Canadian, uh, in Sydney. Uh, she was there for a secondment and, you know, one of those that uh, ended up being there for about three and a half years longer than she originally anticipated. Uh, but she did end up coming back to Canada uh, and I followed her back across. And uh, that was in 2012, so uh, just over 10 years ago now. And um, since that time, I'd, I'd worked at Collins Barrow, which became RSM, uh, ultimately kind of leading their deal consulting practice here, uh, again, focused on M&A, corporate finance. Um, but again, in that mid-market space, entrepreneur space, working with you know, family offices, entrepreneurs, high net wealth investors, um, and, um, and other mid-market clients sort of going through a transaction process. Um, so then I, I guess a confluence of events occurred you know, on, the, on the professional side. Um, you know, I was I was leading um, private equity practice at, at RSM. I was leading the deal consulting practice. Found myself doing a lot of um, internal work, um, less working with clients. And then on the on the personal side, you know, obviously kind of COVID ro- rolled around. It made a lot of people think about what they were doing with their life. Um, and uh, I've, uh, I guess at the time, had a you know, 12-month-old daughter. She's now three and a half. And that made me think about like the world that she was growing up into as well. And so, you know, I, that's where you know, the genesis for Waterpoint Lane really started to, to um, you know, kind of cultivate in, in my mind at least. And then uh, the domino that really fell um, to, to creating Waterpoint Lane was was ultimately when a family office approached me and you know, they were looking at a, an opportunity to invest in a, in a food tech um, company, a plant-based food uh, opportunity and, just given my expertise in in the space to some degree that they'd that they'd, they'd seen I helped them through that transaction and I think facetiously at one point through the process said I'd write a check into that deal and they said well okay well if you're going to write a check we'll write one with you and we'll do it together and you know we uh, we put a you know a numbered code together you know became that investor and then that that formed the genesis for me putting a a plan to them around what. I thought Waterpoint Lane could be in relation to investing in in the food and ag space, and they uh, they were supportive of that strategy, and that's ultimately kind of where it went. So, I uh, I left RSM in July of of um, 2021 and launched uh, Waterpoint Lane officially in August of of 2021, and so you know, just over a year old now, and uh, having a lot of fun doing it. Awesome. And that uh, that's a, a great lineup to uh, your background and kind of where you've landed today. And before we jump in, one thing about you that nobody would know. Uh, not a lot that my wife doesn't know, but uh, um, in, in terms of most other people, I would say the, the, when I moved across to, to Canada, for some reason, I just decided I wanted to run a marathon. Um, and uh, um Certainly wasn't a marathon runner at the time, and ultimately ended up running three marathons consecutively um, before I decided that was um, not the right um, thing to continue to do on a going forward basis as I was, as I was getting older. But I do have that bug still, and so um, I plan to run a, a, a an ultra marathon uh, this coming year in twenty three. So uh, we'll see how that pans out. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Well, it sounds like uh, it was. What's something that you needed to do since you did three of them? And uh, even though you said you retired to jump back into the one that's even tougher than the marathon. So yeah. I guess uh, it was all worth it. It's pretty exciting. We'll see how we go. <laughs> I love it. So we're going to kind of like propel backwards here into where you became an analyst. But one thing that really kind of stood out to what you shared was that you had somebody that you met early on that kind of helped you decide 
two verticals and areas that you should go into. Maybe share a little bit about that because I think that's pretty important. You don't normally hear that, especially at an early stage, that someone's saying, hey, you know, maybe you should look at this. I've analyzed your skills and you should be kind of going in this direction. I, I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I would say I've, I've had the benefit um, throughout my career of having some you know, mentor um, slash influential people uh, that have helped guide me in, in directions you know, based on what they see. And I, and I think that's important for, for, for people, obviously, as they kind of navigate their careers. Um, and so, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting discussion because I, I guess I was you know working at uh, at the company Telstra at the time and, and he'd he he kind of called me into the office one day and sat me down and you know, it was it was a pretty uh blank and transparent conversation around um you know where my career was headed and uh, and you know i may remember it slightly differently than 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 reality but you know i what i do remember is that he he said to me you know here's your options and if you don't choose one within the next 6 months or so i'll i'll fire you and you'll have to make a choice otherwise and i'm not sure how how um uh, how real that 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 threat ultimately was, but um, it did made me made me think about the options and and you know as an ex consultant he'd introduced me to people that he'd worked with in the past. He he got the corporate development team at uh, at Telstra to introduce me to the to the banking options that are available to me, and I think you know helped me think about you know what does that path look like and and you know what is my skill set and and where do I want to ultimately kind of go with my career. So I think those those periods as, as you're going through your career to kind of stop and and just kind of look at the bigger picture I think are important and having people to help you navigate that um can can be hugely beneficial of course. Well I think that's huge and and very helpful for sure and and uh, I can think back um, when I was working at Loblaws, uh, at the time I was in the uh, e- running all the e-commerce platforms at the time after I switched over from the engineer side and uh, software side. And, and it's interesting because my boss sat me down, I think it was for an annual review, and he sat me down and he said, um, you, you don't belong here. And I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what do you mean I don't belong here? And he's like, uh, the way you work and the things that you come up with and do, you, you don't fit here. You should be in a startup. And I was like, what? What do you mean? And I didn't know what to say. I've, I've, I was kind of like shot. And I, I probably left feeling, oh, why am I feel so beat up? But it was the first time I actually had heard that. And I had been a startup way back before. So it was fascinating that um, it wasn't like directional, like you said, where it was, if you're not out of here in six months, I'm going to fire you. But it was it was interesting because it was the starting point to when it did actually um, probably within a year, I was gone and on my own startup. So right. it was uh, fascinating on how these little things that you hear kind of around you or somebody faces you um, with that question uh, that you start to kind of maybe think they're right or I got to dive into this deeper so um it's kind of cool that uh, you had that even though mine was more direct and i had to figure it out uh, you had the coaching and the mentoring side which probably made it a lot easier of a transition than just figuring it out but i think yeah, that that's very valuable absolutely definitely helped for sure so now you, you kind of jump into the analyst side and what i love about the fact that there's two areas that really get the most emphasis in startup world and that is lawyers and accountants they tend to get the our bankers uh, because they understand financials and they tend to be the ones that really drive the most understanding of how a startup works when it comes from a corporate side. 
Everybody else doesn't really, maybe they get a little bit of it, but those two areas really have this hyper vision of where a startup can go and how they can help and help them structure it and move a business forward. So now taking this understanding that you have being an analyst, um, I think it makes a real big impact on how you can start shaping a startup, especially in the future. Maybe at the time you weren't looking at that until you said you were working on that one project. Maybe there's a couple of things that you can share that really do provide that value to someone that's new. They're going into the work environment. Uh, I find that getting a job at one of these at a bank or at a, a McKinsey, like a consulting firm, wherever it might be, it's super valuable, especially if you think one day I'm going to get into a startup. How valuable was that to your career, being able to get in there, spend those years really diving in to understand modeling, frameworks, governance, um, and maybe share a few things that you took from that experience? Yeah, I, I think um, the, the the big thing that I took, you know, obviously as an analyst, I spent probably 90, 95% of my time in front of an Excel spreadsheet um, at, at Deutsche Bank. And um, when I say 95% of my time, like 95% of all my time, not just, you know, my work time, because, you know, work time was was all time at that point. But um, I would say, you know, just just the, the, the rigor around understanding the numbers, because um, I think, you know, too often it, you, know, you can kind of get a little bit um, misguided by by mission and and um, the uh, you know the the market opportunity as opposed to you know what are the real fundamentals that are you know kind of driving the business and you know it um, especially you know we're obviously kind of going through a macro um, environment at the, at the moment that uh, you know is going to be challenging and is getting increasingly challenging uh, especially for startups and and you know just simple things like understanding your cash flow or cash burn and and you know where that where that um, you know the you know the, the the revenue and margin profiles are um, in, and compared to you know other players in the in the industry or other players in in similar sectors I think that rigor around that type of analysis um, and then be able to project that forward and, and understanding, you know, what are the drivers that can be pulled from a business perspective to um, hit certain scenarios. And I, and I think scenario planning and scenario analysis is something that people say a lot, but don't do uh, incredibly well a lot of the time. And so, you know, I've spoken to a ton of startups, obviously, over the last year or so in relation to, um, you know, a, a raise that they're obviously, you know, kind of looking at doing and, you know, just challenging them on, on, on their projections and where they think the business is going around, you know, certain assumptions. You, know, you can see that the, the startups that have spent a lot of time and thought uh, in, in that scenario planning world and those that haven't because they end up with a pretty one-dimensional view of, of how their business is ultimately going to unfold. And I think it's pretty naive, obviously, to, to assume that, you know, the projections that you set in 21 or 20 or, you know, you know even now are going to play out to, the, to a singular uh, degree. And so just understanding how the business can be, can be flexed to, to respond to market conditions, I think, is super important. And I think that's definitely the, the key thing that I learned as I was kind of learnt, you know, kind of learning the ropes at, at Deutsche Bank. And, and then, you know, I'd say that the, the second thing, because, you know, they, you know, investment banks typically operate pretty flat structures. Obviously, you, you know, you have your, your levels, but, you know, it's, it's not super heavy. And so, you know, you end up with a lot of exposure to, to MDs that have, you know, 20, 30 years of, of investment banking experience they cut to the chase pretty quickly on, on, on opportunities. Like, you know, we'll, we'll spend, 
you know, two weeks working through a, you know, a, a deck um, to, to, to pitch a, um, you know, a client on a strategy, they already know what they, they expect to pitch because they're so in tune with the market and just being able to cut to the chase on, on, on strategy and, and um, using that data to, to support that strategy, I think is, is super, um, super interesting to, to see and you know, something that I've obviously continued to learn um, to this day, obviously as well. No, that's brilliant. And, and numbers tell a great story. And if you can understand the numbers, you can really start to strategize around them and, and start to pick that apart and figure out if there's a, there's a gap that you can take. Now to, to kind of jump onto that strategy side, um, is there a certain process that you like to use when helping a founder or business work through a strategy? Like, Do you have certain terms? Because I'm going to say that 95% of all founders probably don't really understand strategy. And especially when it comes to financials, there's probably even a bigger gap on really understanding really the metrics. And you spend a lot of time in a spreadsheet and then you sweat, switch over and now you're on PowerPoint, uh, um, winning the world through PowerPoint. And you know you kind of have to bounce between the two. So how do you coach that? And what does that look like for a founder? Yeah, you know, I think just you know, coming it does you know in in my mind, um, and you know, I, I look at the lens through through my um, the lens of opportunity through through my experience. It does it does come back to you know what what do the numbers actually tell you? And and I, I would say you know you've probably seen the same um, you know we see an investor deck that you know talks to a total addressable market of you know X billion dollars. It's always some some billion dollars market like it's it's rare to see one that's less than that um and and yeah therefore you know we'll, we'll take one percent of the market and therefore you know we're you know a hundred million dollar plus organization you know it's all great like you know percentages on a spreadsheet of taking one percent of a market uh is is interesting but it's certainly not um you know how how business works and so what what I like to do when I see these types of opportunities, and and certainly when I'm talking to, the, to to founders, is kind of say, okay, that that's great to have goalposts, but like I want to understand what the three or five year execution plan ultimately looks like to get there. So let's break it down from today as to where you're at. Is what is what is the execution strategies like? What is the channel strategy? You know, what is the sales strategy? What is the marketing strategy? What is the operational kind of strategy to to help execute and build up on that? Because if you can't demonstrate that in a in a progressive fashion, then I can't believe in your addressable market opportunity. Um, and I think that's the area where, and again, you know, kind of bouncing that around with scenario analysis and and you know, what is the what is the the flex in the business if if this goes wrong or if this this goes right and you know, if this actually goes better than than that, you know, does does um how how does the business adjust to, to those types of principles? And I think that's the area where I spend a lot more time on my, my analysis on on opportunities and certainly as I'm talking to um you know the, the companies I'm working with. So does that now put when you're diving in and, and educating the founders in these processes and building them up, or maybe they're already advanced enough, does that put you kind of trying to look at more of a seed plus series A type company because the knowledge is not going to really be there or the understanding maybe. So you are looking for more advanced based companies maybe today or even back then. Yeah. Like the, the investments that we're making today in Waterpoint Lane were you know, typically in that series A through C type um, round. And I say 
typically like the, my investors, my LP investors, um, we're, we're not taking science and technology risk. Uh, we're taking scale up and growth risk. Um, and we like to see businesses have proven out that there is a there is a market opportunity and a market for their product or service. Um, and it's it's proven that there is a market opportunity and they just need fuel to the fire to help execute on that growth. And so, you know, I, I obviously, you know, bring a bring a financial lens to help support the companies as they're going through that process. And I've got a group of operating partners that have other expertise, you know, ops, production, agri-food sustainability, CPG world, data science, science and AI to help, you know, support the companies in areas that I don't have the right skill set. And it's certainly a feature of obviously how we like to invest is is to be supportive of our of our companies in, in their growth plan. I love it. And when you're going back to um, your Grant Thornton and and more the corporate finance side, are there things that you learned along the way that you never thought were really be applicable to early stage and today they're more applicable than ever? Is there something that kind of stands out that you were like, I can't believe that this was never implemented everywhere? Uh, well, I think that the the key thing I learned through that entire process, um, and I, I would say, you know, it's a, it's not something that uh, I, I don't continue to learn on is is just the almost the psychology of 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 entrepreneurs and and uh, business owners. And I think, you know, when you when you're at an organization like a Deutsche Bank, you know, you, you're dealing with you know, to some degree, a bit of a removed set of individuals from the ultimate outcome. You know, sure, they might have a little bit of equity, obviously, um, in the business, but more, but more often than not, you know, you know, that's large public companies. Um, you know, their, their, their shareholders are obviously much more diverse. The companies that we're typically dealing with, founders are, you know, 50, 60% of the, the, the share register. Um, you know, previously when I was with Collins Barrow and Grant Thornton, uh, RSM days, you know, dealing with owner operators that, you know, own hundred percent of the business. And, and, you know, this is likely to be their only transaction, you know, they're, they're not serial transaction people. And so a meaningful outcome to them is meaningful, not just from their perspective with the business. It's a very kind of personal and life-changing experience one way or another and, and potentially intergenerationally. And so, Helping them navigate that process, you know, the highs and lows of a transaction process, because you know it's not always rosy. You know, there's there's uh, there's issues that come up. You have to navigate those issues, whether it's valuation or whether it's deal structure and process. And so, just working through those issues with with um, entrepreneurs, and so it helps me kind of think about the the mindset of entrepreneurs as as I'm working with with. Um, with startups now. And, and I, I probably ask questions through the process that I would say some entrepreneurs are a little confused about because I'm trying to understand, you know, to some degree, some of their psychology, not just, not just their, their ability to execute on a business plan, how, how they may ultimately respond to, uh, you know, issues that come up, you know, whether it's transactionally or whether it's operationally in their business and, and get a, a better feel for them as an individual, as, as opposed, as much as a, feel as a, as a leader of their organization. And you find that there's a, there's a difference between um, a technical founder or a numbers founder than it is between someone that's more operationally mindset or someone that's more on the marketing side. Are you finding like there's a significant level of understanding or uh, how they work with you at the same time? Yeah. Like I, I would say there's, 
there's multiple types of founders and leaders, obviously, and and understanding which type, obviously, we're working with and, and dealing with at the outset is is critical to how I would obviously deal with them. Um, but it's also critical understanding their team as a result of that. And so, you know, and no, no one's perfect. No one can have all the skill set. Obviously, you know, I don't purport to have all the skill set required, and hence the reason I kind of have a group of operating partners that I work with. And so, you know, it's kind of how I expect a, a management team to kind of build themselves up. You know, technical competence, operations, um, and growth, uh, marketing, sales, etc. And so, depending on the the leader um, and how they've kind of put their team together, I think the the other point is is a leader of an organization potentially. Um, you know, depending on the individual should should you know kind of change and transition along the way so you know the technical founder early may not be the right founder or may not be the right leader for the organization kind of post scaling up and growing and so having the self-awareness around that i think is critical as well and so i certainly talk to founders that i'm dealing with around how they see their transition in the organization over time and if they're self-aware enough to understand that they're not necessarily going to be ceo forever and understand how, how they may respond to that either positively or negatively accordingly. And we've been talking about this a lot lately over the last couple of months and getting different perspectives because it is going to change, especially as a company grows and only because we uh, earlier chatted with uh, the Elon Musk effect or things like that. But, you know, even when he came in, he was the marketing side and, and maybe he's the vocal brain side, who knows, it could be a mix of everything. Um, but, you know, the company like Tesla was originally started with engineers and they built the company and Elon came in and layered on top to take over that. So is that, um, you know, they had to accept that. They had to say, you know what, do we want to be big and huge or do we want to uh, just keep operating the, the way we are? You know, how do you, like even from your past experience, did you find that as you're deep diving into these companies and doing this analysis that you're actually seeing that maybe through the numbers or through the interactions that, you know, maybe this founder isn't there and you're like, I want to say something, but I'll hold my tongue on this one and let the uh, senior level people throw this out there at them eventually, if they even see it, is it something that you can pinpoint? And if it is something you can pinpoint, what is the lesson? Like, what do you look for? And, and so that founders can say, yeah, you know what, maybe I'm thinking that even though we're at a series a i'm already feeling that i'm not the right fit and i got to get someone that comes in here that can be i don't know more of a cheerleader or more of a marketing person you know what does that what defines that yeah and and i would say like i I very much like to have very transparent conversations with um companies that i'm working with and companies that i potentially would work with very early on um i you know maybe it's the australian i mean coming out to, to some degree but i would say yeah i don't like to be um you know, kind of finagling around the issue. I would just like to get it get it up front and on the table and and discuss it and and see how um, you know perspective aligns. And I'm not saying I'm right all the time, obviously for sure. But you know, I I certainly like to understand how a founder may may think about their transition. Um, I've certainly passed on deals where I thought you know the founder just isn't the right guy, and I I do know that I um, that they're not going to transition accordingly. Um, and I just see that as too big a risk to, to get over. Um, but I, I do um, like to to talk about it in the context of the scenario planning and scenario analysis that we're doing through our diligence as we're looking at um, you know the options that the business takes on a growth path. And so, you know, when when you know I'm looking at a business and you know they you know they put a nice projection in front of me, which is scaling at you know plus fifty percent year on year. And at some point you can see like the business, you know, based on their projections, 
just looks fundamentally different than what it looks like today. You know, the, the op structure is, you know, five times the size, you know, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's more of a sales and marketing organization that is a, a technology and R and D organization. So that's where I like to start challenging that, that perspective on, on how the, the founder sees their role. Uh, and so, you know, when, when you see the, you know, the, the PL, especially on the, on the, um, uh, OPEX side, you know, kind of transition from that uh, that heavy R and D and product development side to, you know, sales growth. That's where I like to say, all right, well, now this this organization is no longer a development organization. This is a, a growth and sales based organization. How do you see your role, and you know, where do you see you, yourself fitting in? And just again, being transparent around what that would look like and could look like. And, and you're right, it does come back again, no matter what, it comes back to the numbers when you start to look at it. And, you know, I learned this through my my days at Loblaws went back in the day too, is that when you started to look at who is coming in as the CEO, and now that's obviously been revamped a few times, but when you looked at when we were in a, a recession or downsiding, it, it became the, um, the CFO that was rolling into that position because they were in to be cost-cutting measures, make right. changes, stabilize the business. And then when things are ramping, up and going like crazy then you brought in a product person and that product person went up and taking and running the company and it seemed to bounce between product and um finance versus marketing and uh, other vehicles because really at the end of the day i think there's there's really a strategic side to understanding your product but there's also a strategic side to understanding how to expand and or shrink based off of the financial numbers and you know you can even take it even bigger to companies that we see from like uh howard schultz at star Starbucks were, you know, built a great company, stepped down probably, I think I'm going to make the guess three times in 2000, maybe 2012, went back in, stepped down again, and then went back again in 2022. So, you know, as much as you think you can always stay away, but there is also the learning you take from that to where that founder comes back in. Um, And uh, as a one to 2% um, owner of of shares in uh, um, Starbucks, he still has the control to be able to do that. I'm I'm going to assume, but uh, I think people believe in what they've built and what he's built. So I don't think it's something that a founder has to be worried about. I know there's always the fear that um, the board's going to kick me out, or I'll never be able to come back in, or they don't like me, or what's going on. But I think to your point, there's that uh, suggested um, play that says, you know, are you the right person at this time? It doesn't mean you have to exit the organization. It's what is the best for the organization in order to continue scaling or growing. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, it it, it can be hard for a founder to disassociate themselves from their their baby to, to some degree. Um, you know, as as they've you know kind of built and, and led the organization to a point. But you know, you, you also kind of talk about in you know, black and white terms. You know. They're as as vested as anybody in getting the right economic result for the business going forward. So, you know, we're, we're a minority equity investor. We're typically, um, you know, holding less equity than than a um, a founder. Um, often, you know, when when we're when we're actually writing a check, and so, you know, they're as they're, they're more vested than we are ultimately in their in their outcome. And so, you know, if we can't sit down and, and agree that the right outcome for business may be a transition of their 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 role within the organization. Again, as you say, not not to step away from the organization, but to take a different role in the organization based on, you know, where the company's at at this particular time and where the market is at, then uh, and that's an important you know, decision point. 
And you mentioned the psychology of it. And again, because you're coming in at a, a series A versus uh, early on at this pre-seed and seed, there's that build-up phase, the run-up phase, the crazy stuff happening, the ups and downs um, until you get to more of a scale and stable side. How, how does the psychology work within these founders, especially when they get to that series A side? Um, we see it. We've had companies go public. We've gone through that stream. But um, a lot of the times, the founders will step down. And we had that happen when the company one company was going public the founder stepped down to bring in somebody more senior more public facing and then had to jump back into the business because they didn't understand the hustle of what it takes to be in that type of business because yeah you can streamline it and turn it into a process and commercialize but if you're not getting the the drive and the hustle from that um, real growth phase type of founder, uh, then you accomplish one thing, which was get it public and have the public face to it, but you don't have that same hustle behind it. So what does that psychology look like when you're talking to founders? And I love this. I think this is very influential in understanding because a lot of founders out there are scared. They're like, I'm, and I talk to this all the time. I don't want to have a board because you're going to try and dominate my company. Oh, I don't want to have this because you're going to do these things. And you know, there's these negative things that are put out there there, but uh, I think they just don't realize that it's not meant to um, take over or beat the company uh, up. It's literally there to help them get to a, a very scalable opportunity to grow and utilize all the brain power in that room and not just emphasis it on one. Right. And and you know, boards are the same as management teams, right? They should evolve as a company evolves at the same time. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I challenge founders on, on their governance structure, Um you know, based on on where they're at as well, and like you know, you see you see boards filled with you know their their lawyer, accountant, um, you know maybe their wealth advisor or someone kind of random like that, and then you know maybe an industry person, and you know that there's as as they're kind of looking to do a raise, maybe there's a spot or two for for an investor that's coming in on the raise. You know, I like to understand like how they view the board as as a as a as a tool for their 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 growth, um, and I think you know. You, you see various boards set up, you know, some, are, you know, almost feel like they're just there for, for checking the box, um, which kind of reflects that type of structure that I mentioned before. Others, others you see are very thoughtfully set up, you know, that they've got people on their board that they, they are leveraging and, and can, you know, you can see can add significant uh, growth to the business. And, and so, you know, we spend a lot of time talking to, to, to management around their board, obviously, and we, we talk to the board members, obviously, around around the opportunities. And and certainly, we like to play an active role uh, from a governance perspective, you know, where, where it makes sense, obviously, given, you know, where, where we're coming in on the cap structure. Um, but but kind of thinking thinking through that as as to how the the entrepreneurs again see see their ability to leverage the tools that they have around them is is the the psychology that we kind of look to to understand and and certainly you know to to your point on on potentially exit strategies understanding where they think the business is going to go and how they expect to either monetize or uh, um, kind of achieve a liquidity event, obviously for them and the shareholders. You know, do they do they want to be in this for the next thirty or forty years? Are they are they that type of builder, or are they? You know, do they want to build and run, um, and then you know find something new to do, etc. And understanding that that type of mindset, I think, is is critical. Um, it's it's 
It's actually, I find it more rare these days to find a, a founder that actually wants to be a public company CEO. Um, I actually find it quite rare um, in, in most of the business that we talk to that as soon as you kind of bring up that exit strategy, they're like, hell no, like not something I'd, I'd like to be a part of. And, you know, if, if a public company exit strategy is right, we'll bring in someone else to be the public kind of CEO. You know, and maybe that they'll want to continue a role in the organization, but certainly would not want to be the public facing of it. Um, so I think it, it has become a little bit more of a specialized skill set. Um, and, uh, and I think it's to some degree, um, it, it does feel a little um, more challenging for, for a founder to, to, to get to that level because of the additional requirements around obviously kind of being a, a public facing um Kind of management team obviously there's a lot more disclosure and 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 regulatory requirements that come with obviously a, a public company that they they would need to get their head around uh, but also um I, I also do like to coach some of our um, companies that as they continue to raise capital and get more and more sophisticated investors they are going to have to start to act a little bit more like a public company in their processes and their reporting requirements and their their uh, their governance structures that the transition is not as significant as they may feel um, too, and so I think there's just those um, you know, types of dynamics that that founders need to understand, and so it kind of comes back to understanding their role in the organisation as the company continues to scale because it's not always just the public to private to public transition. It's it's where you get certain significant shareholders that start to hit the hit the share register. You know their, their role may need to change uh, alongside that accordingly as well. I love it. And and I think what all of this kind of shares is that as a founder is growing their company, they always have to be planning ahead, being strategic, knowing that they're going to have to go to this commercialization standpoint and that people that understand numbers, people understand scaling and growth. doesn't matter if they come in as an investor, they come in as a board, or they come in as um, a supporting coach or feature, uh, that everything is going to be directed to help that company get to that next level, that next stage. And there's different people at different levels, and each one of them is a level up. And you have to keep leveling up. And if you're not going to level up, and I'm sure we've all played video games, some of us more than others, I love video games. Uh, you're you're always leveling up. You're trying to get better. Well, you can't get better if you don't uh, um, have some wins and you don't start taking down things so that you can get a better hammer and a better all of these pieces that make your business better, stronger. And that comes with the people. And, and I think one of the things I would uh, jump on too and that um, um, really makes a lot of sense too is that um, you're able to be direct and share this background and share this information. I think those are key things for anybody that's in a business. But the big one that really stood out is that you mentioned that when you go into something, the board is going to change. The team is going to change. All of these things keep getting upgraded. So the people that were on your board in that pre-seed or your seed, they shouldn't be there by the time you get to a series A or B, because right. that's a whole different layer of money, different layer of governance. And you need to have those people that come in at those stages and have that in mind. So you're always upgrading and making those changes. Yep, exactly. 
Brilliant. Well, I think uh, I, I think that was brilliant. Just well shared. I think there's a lot of stuff there that people just fight with. They they really have this bad notion. I don't know who's spreading these rumors, but um, you know, I I think just even from the example of um, of Schultz on how he had to step down and up in order to build a company, and I think that that's highly important for a founder to not feel afraid that from a psychological point of view that they're going to take a beating. That it's actually really good for them and their business to be able to step in step out and be able to have that different view, but knowing that they've got a lot of good people around trying to increase the value and drive that business in the right direction. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we live, we live in a world today of, um, you just generally, um, you know, there's a lot of coaches in the world, um, sports coaches, life coaches, whatever. Um, yeah, there are a lot of executive coaches too. And I think, um, I see a lot of value in, in, Founders as they as they're evolving through their business, working with uh, coaches as well to support their growth. Because um, as much as they they might not have the skill set today to be the, the the right individual leading the company at a certain stage, doesn't doesn't mean they can't build and learn that that skill set over time. And so, you know, working with coaches um, and having you know, management teams work with with coaches to help support their their, their personal development as they're, as they're continuing to scale their organization can be hugely beneficial, you know, for, for them. Um, but as importantly, for, for us as investors and, you know, other stakeholders to the business as well. Brilliant. I love it. Noted, everybody, when you get your things together, start finding the right people that you can start coaching you and uh, helping you execute and build bigger, faster, better companies. And that, that starts with the right people. So well shared. Yep. Uh, so we're going to transition now into one of those heartfelt moments, case studies, um, a founder or founders that you talk with, work with, or even just came across. Um, share, could you share an example of what it takes to be a founder, um, the, the dynamics, the excitement of it? I think as an audience, we love a great story. Uh, of course, we, we, we love the story of someone just making it happen and he or she just crushes it. Um, but is there something you can share on what it does take to be a founder and what they might go through in, in any type of business they're in? <laughs> Yeah, like I, I, yeah, I think founders at heart are builders, right? Like at the end of the day, like you know, they they want to build something and and have it grow and flourish. Um, and so, if you're not a builder, um, you know, I, I, I would struggle to to see at the end of the day how you can be a great founder. Um, uh, and and so, you know, we we look at builders and we we talk to people that are obviously kind of building great companies. Um, you know, obviously. Um, with a view to building a great company um, early on, and and you know assess you know how how they have have kind of got to their point, um, and and you know I would say that the one you know constant in all of the stories is there is no constant. <laughs> it it you know there's, there's no linear path to to kind of building a company and, and scaling a company. Um, you know we we are talking to great companies now and and looking at great opportunities for companies that have taken 15 years to get to the point where they are at today um, versus other companies that have taken like six months to get to where they're at. And, and there, there's various reasons for all of that. Um, and they're all very situation specific and situation dependent. You know, some, some, some founders, builders are just a little bit too early in, in the, the market opportunity. And you know, sometimes the market has to catch up with them um, before they're, you know, they, they get product fit um, and market fit kind of right. 
um, sometimes you know, people are just responding to what the market is doing and, and can scale very quickly based on on you know, opportunity and, and demand. Um, so I'd say the the requirement of a founder to to be able to flex um, and and flex their their path um, and and not be so stubborn that they can't adjust their path i think is is the, the you know almost the most critical point um as 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 the markets change and you know the market today is very different from what it was you know 12 months ago uh and and the ability for a founder to to navigate that and respond to to those market conditions um <laughs> you know you, you you've seen the stories of the large vc funds obviously telling their their founders to you know, kind of batten down the hatches and stop spending and, and, you know, preserve cash compared to, you know, the messages that they were getting 12 months ago, which is kind of grow scale and, and do everything you can to, to, um, you know, grow the top line. And so, you know, that takes, a you know, potentially a different skill set. It takes a different mindset for sure. And so just being able to adjust to that um, on a, on a, on what can be a, a very quick basis, I think is, is the key. It almost sounds like um, what my favorite is, is there's a point in time where you just have to blow shit up and just keep doing it because, you know, sometimes you're you're coasting or you're doing things in the right fashion. You're making money. Things are turning out nicely, uh, but things don't feel right or things aren't aggress- progressively moving in a, the same fast upward trajectory that you're looking for. And sometimes you have to shake the tree to, to kind of get things moving again and bring a pulse back to the business. And it, it kind of sounds like that's kind of what you're looking at. And you're saying, you know, maybe the market conditions are what's uh, creating the the change, but you need to jump into it full hands on and, and make the, the change with it. So it, it kind of is a part and parcel to the environment, learn, watch, and, and make sure that you're adjusting quickly quick and fast but you're also utilizing the knowledge that's coming in on you so that you can catch it before it hits you like a ton of bricks that's right and and you know we're we're a we're a thematic investor right like we're, we're investing in in the sustain like the increasing sustainability of our food system and i think you know be hard pressed to find anyone that doesn't agree that that is a theme that is going to experience some some you know long-term fundamental change and you know in my view kind of change always creates opportunity but it doesn't mean everything's kind of rosy on a day-to-day basis. You know, the the market, as I said, today is very different than it was 12, 12 months ago. So, you know, how a company navigates the next, you know, one, two, three years of, of kind of turbulent market conditions compared to just, you know, the growth market that existed for 10 plus years before, I think is is fundamental to, to you know, uh, you know how how we assess founders and how founders need to assess the the opportunity in front of them. So, while kind of macro thematic conditions may be favourable, it doesn't mean you know short term um, uh, kind of trends are, are necessarily always in the in the, the same direction. So, being able to to flex and respond and have the business respond to to what's you know near and dear, let alone um, you know the longer term opportunity, I think is is hugely important keeping a hand on the pulse. And as you just said, flex, being able to flex. I like that. Love it. That's awesome. Well, we're going to transition now into our rapid fire questions. The way it works is I'm going to give you an option, one or two, one or the other, and you're coming in from the investor side. So uh, choose which one works best for you. Yep. And we'll, uh, we'll do the business side first and then we'll jump in personally. Sounds good. I love it. All right, here we go. Founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or four-year 10x exit? Four-year 10x exit. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFT or Web 3.0? 
Web 3.0. AI or blockchain? AI. First time founder or second, third time founder? Second, third time founder. First money in or series A? Series A. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Convertible note. Lead or follow? Follow. Equity or interest payments? Equity. First part of, favorite part of investing? Favorite part? Just meeting meeting the entrepreneurs. Love it. Number of companies invested per year? Uh, Four to six. Perfect. Any preferred terms? Uh, Preferred shares. Love it. Verticals of focus? Sustainability of food. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you? Uh, Mission-oriented and and path to profitability. I like that. Uh, Personal side, book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? Superman. Restaurant or picnic? Uh, Restaurant. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? (laughs) Bezos. Mountain or beach? Beach. Bike or run? Run. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Chicken McNuggets. Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Beer. Camera or mobile phone? Camera. King or rich? King. Concert or amusement park? Concert. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Fortune cookie. TED Talk or book reading? TED Talk. TikTok or Instagram? Neither, but Instagram if I have to have one. (laughs) Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Most famous person that pops in your mind? Oh, because you said Bezos, so I can't get him out of my mind now. (laughs) I I had the same thing. I'm like, ah, I got to change the sequence so that people won't (laughs) think of the ones that are in there. But it doesn't always happen, but Apple does come up a lot. Uh, Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Uh, Shawshank Redemption, and uh, I'd pay uh, uh, one blank on his name, the, 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 the main guy. Um, oh, the, the one that, the, oh my God. The one, the one that obviously, obviously escapes at the end that Tim Robbins plays. Um, yes, okay. Okay, you know what? I, I'm going to bring this up again. This is crazy. This, this factual information that has to come out is that, uh, and I'm going to go through and sort this out, but I'm going to say that at least 50% of all investors that I have interviewed have picked Shawshank Redemption as their favorite movie. Really? Yes. That's crazy. There has to be something behind this because must be. at, like, is it this uh, uh, coming from behind and, and getting out and being free? I don't know, but it, it's really amazing that everybody chooses that movie. Like it doesn't come. Mine's like matrix and crazy stuff like that. And everybody always picks Shawshank. I'm like, I'm going to watch this again. Maybe I haven't had a heartfelt moment enough and I need that because it, it, it blows my mind that I just think it's amazing. So it's, yeah, cool. it's such a good movie. It's got so many good themes running through it. Agreed, agreed. Uh, favorite book? Uh, Shantaram. Ooh, I don't think I've heard of that one. Shantaram. Uh, Amazon is actually just, uh, I think it's Amazon or Apple. Apple, I think, actually just made a, a TV series out of it. So if you don't like to read, you can get to the to the TV series. 
Which what is it about? Shantaram. I, I I love reading. The guy that escapes prison uh, and flees to India, and then his his life kind of on the run in in India and his experiences through uh, through India. It's pretty uh, pretty cool story. Um, it's I a like it's a thick story. one though. I've been trying to get my wife to read it for about fifteen years. <laughs> oh yeah, nice. That one sounds cool. I'm gonna find that. See if I can uh, read it up. Uh, all right, uh, first brand that pops into your mind. Kellogg. Nice. Favorite sports team? Uh, well, originally, like, I, I was a, a Australian sports team, and I, I do have a, a long-running affiliation still with my Australian sports teams. But from a, from a global perspective, it's Liverpool FC. Um, and then locally, uh, obviously, a, a Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and a Buffalo Bills fan. All right, I can uh, I can go with the uh, with the Blue Jays. I'm not sure, and the Raptors are good. The the Maple Leafs, I'm uh, I might have to hang up on you, but um, <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> the uh, Liverpool man, they've taken a beating this year, but uh, yeah, yeah they, they still have one of the best players in the world, so I I think uh, they've got room to grow. But Arsenal's crushing it. So finally, I, I used to have a question that was. Um, uh, what's your favorite team between Arsenal and Manchester or something or Man U and everybody picked Man U and I was like, okay, I can't find an Arsenal fan anywhere. And well, now I can say, oh, I bet you there's some new Arsenal fans now. Yeah, well, and I'd definitely pick Arsenal over, over Man United for sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I would have gotten there almost at the end. What is the meaning of success to you? Uh, being happy. It's a, that's a really good Success story, I agree. Happy does make things just that much better. Last question, what is your superpower? Uh, I think calmness. Like I uh, I would say I'm just inherently uh, pretty calm about life. And so, you know, we'll we'll figure it all out eventually. I like it. It does sound like uh, you carry a lot of the calmness, but I think coming from it from a numbers perspective, I think there's that analytical side too, which is uh, super helpful for uh, for any founder to be able to uh, uh, to have. And I'm, I'm sure the surf side and uh, bringing all that uh, uh, differentiating stuff that happens in uh, your hometown to where you are today, which we did, uh, we should ask one more question, which is, is there any difference from Australia and Canada? Um, or as everybody says, it's identical. And uh, you can say that um, we should open up the borders and uh, allow for Canadians to be able to move back and forth between Australia and Canada because they're so similar. Well, I think they, like, if you hang out at Bear for whistle, whistle long enough, you kind of feel like you're in Australia anyway. But um, I, would, I, I think culturally, very similar. Um, economically, kind of feels generally pretty similar. I think that the only thing I had to you know, just get a little bit more used to was the fact that um, Australia is just so remote from anywhere that, uh, you know, it's always very difficult to get, uh, get um, you know, kind of trade effectively done. But obviously Canada has a, a big... Um, border uh, just south of us that uh, we have a very big trading partner with that uh, you, know, you just need to, to understand the dynamics with the US um, a lot more than obviously had to previously. So um, apart from that, um, it's a very smooth transition, both, both directions. I love it. Well, I haven't been to Australia yet. Maybe in my travels, uh, one of these days, I'll make my way over there and I'll have to reach out for uh, some connections there. But I'm excited to do, do to go there one day for sure. But um, outside that, 
I want to say that, Ben, it has been a pleasure getting to chat with you. I've taken a million notes, as I like to do, and lots of great things there. And uh, I appreciate all your time and diving into uh, everything and anything great about your background and, of course, what you're doing today. Um, I think it's brilliant. And again, super appreciative of of everything you shared. And the way we kind of like to leave things off is that we like to give the floor to you. The last word, anything you want to share to investors, founders, um, I, I turn it over. And of course, um, please share how they can get a hold of you as well. And thank you very much again. Uh, pleasure. Well, uh, yeah, the, the last thing I would probably would just want to leave um, people with is uh, we're, uh, we're we're doing this discussion with the backdrop of, of COP27 currently going on uh, in Egypt. Um, you know, a very important time for for us, from a from a climate change and climate solution perspective, um, obviously we're a thematic investor in 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 focused on sustainability of our food and ag system, and we think there's a ton of opportunity in that space. But you certainly encourage founders and investors to think about sustainability as a, as a key portion of how they're taking their business and their investment thesis going forward. Um, I think it's super important, you know, for, for us as a as a as a human race at this point in time, we're we're at a bit of a tipping point, and you know the technology and solutions. Um, that are being developed um, are super um, interesting, but also super impactful. And you know, the, the uh, investment and finance community, um, you know, the uh, the regulatory uh, bodies, you know, the provincial and, and federal uh, funding programs need to get behind the, the theme at the same time to to make it all work. I love it. Well shared, Ben. Thank you very much again for your time. Pleasure. Good to chat, Jeffrey. Likewise. That was a great conversation with Ben. Uh, what I really thought was very uh, impactful in this conversation was the talk about uh, what people tend to think when they're uh, an investor or they are coming in as a board or they're jumping into a company, when they start to analyze things and say, wait a second, maybe this founder isn't the right fit and and how do I bring that up? Or what does this look like if um, this founder made that pivot or changed or stepped out? And is there a psychological issue with it? And we probably could have dumped, jumped in a little bit more to understand is, does the company have a psychological issue with this? Meaning that everybody who has been reporting into the CEO and now that person's stepping aside and, and allowing someone else to come in and run the business. But I think overall, what really stood out was that you're not losing the company. What you're doing is you're prepping the company for scaling and success and not every founder can do every stream along the way. So I think that's something that we all have to be cognizant of is that we have a place, maybe we're builders and, and we're not the scaling, or maybe we're good at um, doing the financial analysis or doing the uh, uh, the sales and product side. I think we do have to figure out where we fit because that makes a big difference when you're uh, going out and raising larger funds, especially at that series A side of things. Um, and some of the other things that really stood out was, um, you know, really pivoting and navigating to the conditions that the business currently is in. And I think that's also something that you really have to be uh, really enthralled in and on a, on a dime, be able to move and maneuver the way you need. And of course, talking about strategy um, scenarios around the, 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 the analysis side of, you know, your execution plan for different channel sales, ops, marketing, all of these things are going to be important, especially at that series A when you're bringing in uh, large sums of money. So really well thought out and, and great share. Um, again, Ben, appreciate that. Uh, it was great to have you. Thank you everyone else for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. 
feel free to share an audio or video clip around our show. And we may include in one of our future podcasts, find us at marketing at openpeoplenetwork.com. And we thank you for your support and comments. They're truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.